Hello and welcome to this week's episode of New Narrative's Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast on contemporary issues and current affairs in Singapore. I'm your host, PJ Thumb, and with me as usual is my brilliant co-host, New Narrative's Editor-in-Chief, Kirsten Han. How are you, Kirsten? I'm good. I'm looking forward to learning a lot today. Right. It is a very sensitive topic that we've got today and, you know, one that is, uh, I think, has has, uh, scared a lot of people and shocked a lot of people. We're going to talk about Singapore's recent HIV leak, um, or rather the, the leak of the HIV registry. So with us today, first is Avin Tan, who's Manager of Advocacy and Partnerships at Action for AIDS, which is uh, an NGO that uh, deals with uh, AIDS advocacy and awareness in Singapore, and also a person living with HIV. Welcome, Avin. Hi. So can you just quickly tell our audience what on earth has happened in the past few weeks with regards to this leak? Right. Um, in the past few weeks, I think uh, confidential data of about 14,000 people diagnosed with HIV, so the HIV registry was leaked, um, supposedly leaked online. And and th- this confidential information includes name, addresses, um, HIV status and other medical uh, information uh, that was reportedly breached. Uh, so someone from American who has leaked this online, and it has caused a lot of fear among person living HIV because... Um, people who their control over disclosure has been taken from them and we don't know where this information is going and we don't know how he's going to use this information against people living HIV. Right. And of course, there's a lot of stigma and discrimination in Singapore. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the amount this leak has also caused um, or more or less highlighted the amount of stigma and discrimination that's causing all this fear. Um, people who are reacting, um, sort of a knee-jerk reaction towards um, person living HIV, people are, are looking out, or there's a bit of a witch hunt going on for this list of names um, in some forum websites that we have, we have chanced upon. People are just so worried that uh, some of their children who, have, who doesn't know, or their parents who doesn't know about their status, would come to know of this information. Uh, people are also worried that their employers might use this information against them, or insurance company might use this uh, I know our audience right. at home can't yeah. see Avin. Uh, there'll be some photos on the website, but Avin, you look like a picture of health, right? And uh, may I ask uh, how long you you have personally been living with HIV? Well, I certainly don't look like a picture of health. Uh, oh, you look but, great to me. But I'm healthy. I'm I'm generally okay. You, you uh, work out, right? No, I don't. Oh, okay, <laughs> it's well, fake. Okay, it's all it's all fake. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm. This is, I alluded to genes. I'm good. I have, I have good genes. Um, I've been living in HIV for nine years. And initially, when I was diagnosed about nine years ago, I was actually put on a really old uh, treatment and it contained AZT, which was one of the first few drugs that was made available for treatment of HIV. And so I had really skinny limbs and I had some of the symptoms that are associated with a very old kind of um, prognosis or, or diagnosis for HIV. And But things have changed a lot in the last 9-10 years. Um, medication has gotten so advanced this, year, this time around that people who go on treatment, who are diagnosed early and treat, uh, go on treatment can achieve undetectable viral loads within um, a couple of weeks, sometimes in wow. less, less than six months. And once they achieve undetectable viral loads, um, it actually means that they cannot even transmit the virus um, sexually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And it also means that a person's um, prognosis, a person's um, health and general well-being uh, should improve. Should is that keyword here, of course. 
and normal life expectancy then uh there's a slight yeah, yeah more or less yeah. yeah uh but there's a slight decrease in life expectancy but uh, it has it has caught up a lot oh, wow and yeah. and so you what, what is life like for you now it's just medication to keep things under control yeah i take two pills a day um and for some people just one pill a day and so it's really simple i go in for a regular medical checkup um so i'm going in actually tomorrow to to doctors just get some blood drawn it's really just part of, it really just feels like a normal um medical checkup that anybody has mm. to go through because we screen for cholesterol we screen for um blood count we screen for any other um uh, any other illnesses Mm. Um, or any signs of that. Um, so it's very similar, but we just do it twice a year, just one more time. Twice a year? Average persons. Yeah. Golly, I think I go to the doctor more often than you do. <laughs> you know, because of my, my skin problems that I have mm. from uh, 20 years of swimming in a chlorinated mm. pool, I got these skin problems. So I got to go see uh, a skin specialist every mm. three months. Yeah. Right? I, <laughs> but you're only going every six. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's... I know a lot of Singaporeans, who, or I know a lot of people living in HIV who are extremely healthy people because, um, well, they have to take care of their health, first of all, and as well, because we see our doctors so often, or more often than every Singaporeans, that if there's anything, it's, it's caught very early in the stage and we can manage it pretty well. We have a very good relationship with our doctors as well. So the stigma really is social. There's no medical reason for the stigma then. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, well, also with us today is Chong Kai Xiong, who is a professional software engineer, and he also advises civil society groups on matters of digital security and helps them clean up hacks. Uh, welcome, Kai Xiong. Hi, everyone. So from a, a, a data a privacy security sort of perspective, how do you feel about this leak? Oh, wow. Uh, it's hard to even start because for me, I think the, the, the thing that really stands out to me is that a lot of this information is not going away. I mean, whatever's leaked is going to stay online for a while. So, there's, I mean, there's, there's, this saying, there's this saying among techies that the internet basically does not forget, right? So, once the information is leaked out, it's going to stay there for a while. So, I think that, that poses even more problems than, let's say, um, you accidentally, you accidentally, let's say, let's say you, 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 you share a secret with someone and that someone is... Um, somehow shares with somebody else um, carelessly. So so the problem with, with, with this uh, data link is simply that it is, it, it is essentially in its scale. Well, its scale and the, and the fact that it, it will be around for a long while and very few people, and very few of us can know what, what can happen and what people can do with, with the kind of information against you. So it's just causing like a lot of distress, right? Because even if, say, they arrest everyone now, because it's been leaked, you don't know who else might have screenshotted off the leak and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's really, I think, signaling towards this long-term anxiety that people are going to mm -hmm. have from now on. Yeah, I, I think we're hearing a lot of people who are experiencing very um, psychological kind of trauma, trauma because we don't know where this information will go or how it's going to be used. Um, we A lot of people are just anticipating every day that they're going to be threatened, they're going to be blackmailed, or or somehow they're gonna, the employer is going to find out of this information and terminate them. Um, and, and obviously there aren't any policy or guidelines, clear guidelines in place that protect uh, persons who are living in HIV, especially at the workplace. So these are like, I think the HIV leak, while not the first kind of data leak that Singapore has seen, um, is one where the repercussions are immediately quite clear and the stakes are very, very high for the people who are affected. 
Yeah, um, we are getting people who are calling us in tears or um, the minister himself have also mentioned that they received calls, callers uh, who are experiencing extreme distress, um, suicidal experiencing suicidal thoughts as well and so it's causing a lot of um, unnecessary kind of pain amongst people so can i just ask uh, what is this hiv registry right uh, i had i had no knowledge of it before what is it and why do we need one i'm not sure i can answer the question of, of why do we need one um, but essentially it's a it's a record of um, persons who are diagnosed in singapore who are you know, once I'm diagnosed um, and I decide to seek care in Singapore, then what that happens is it will trigger a notification uh, process where the hospitals or the doctors would have, and have to notify the ministry uh, of uh, of a person who has been diagnosed with HIV. And that's part of the Infectious Disease Act. And it covers about 40 different kinds of infectious diseases, um, HIV being one of them. And so that would then trigger a kind of an interview between myself and an MOH officer. And so it's at that point where they will collect some information. And it's really, from what we know, it's used for data collection, um, sorry, um, contact tracing purposes. Where So they'll ask me, what is my sexual orientation? Um, who do I have sex with? Who do I potentially might have passed this disease on? Um, in the last six months, um, is there a way that they can contact them? Is there a way I can contact them and tell them that I've contacted them or, or recommend that they come back to do a HIV screening? It's all done, obviously, anonymously, right? So the ministry will then send, if we if I give them the permission, then the ministry will then send a anonymous letter to these, these people or to, to give them a call and say that um, someone you had sex in the last six months might have might have been uh, diagnosed with HIV, and we recommend that you come in for a screening within the next couple of weeks. So right. then, so can I just clarify? Um, is this an HIV registry or infectious diseases registry, or are there you know separate registries for each infectious disease? What exactly are we talking about here? I'm I'm not sure if there are how many registries are involved, but I, what what has been leaked so far is the HIV registry right. concerns okay. fourteen thousand people who are diagnosed with HIV. And then also second question, then uh, you said it's contacts, so mm. it doesn't the people on the registry don't necessarily have HIV. They're people who have had contact with people who have HIV. So that it's quite possible you could be on the registry but not have HIV. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so according to, so Channel News Asia had an article that the headline is Why does Singapore need an HIV registry? And in it, the Ministry of Health said that they are using it for public health purposes like disease surveillance, monitoring the HIV infection situation, conducting contact tracing, uh, assessing disease prevention and management measures. So there were doctors who were saying that having this sort of HIV allows the government to decide, no, how much resources they need to devote to this issue and how to direct healthcare costs and things like that. And Singapore isn't the only country that has an HIV registry, so some other countries also do that. Of course, the the issue then comes in when there aren't actual, like, there aren't enough protections for people living with HIV or the LGBT community in a way. So then that becomes quite problematic because then you have a registry of people who are already quite marginalized and then if the security is compromised as we see the repercussions are very serious so why why did this happen my understanding is this it's a, an american chap just managed to get access because his partner was in charge of the database is that i mean that seems to be really insecure to me 
Kaishung, what you know, my understanding is that that why should a you know someone with no security clearance or background or anything have this? Yeah. So access? The, yeah. So one one immediate question you would raise is whether whether um, the uh, the doctor actually himself actually had any kind of security training, any training on handling such information. Because if you if they had, then uh, this is one of the best things you 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 never do. So don't share your don't share your credentials right. with somebody else. That's not authorized to. So then the next question is more like, um, I think I feel like, I mean the the, one, the other the other thing that that came to mind when I when I read the news was, um, um, how is it that you don't have a system in place that would mitigate against such leaks? Because we are we're talking about data of what fourteen thousand. 14,000 people. I mean, a very basic mechanism you could use to contain to contain the damage would be, or de even detect such leaks would be to, to perhaps uh, lock, uh, lock, lock the rate at which the, the data is being downloaded. You could, you could have you could have a system where, which alerts somebody that uh, a lot of data is being extracted at a, at a, at a particular moment because, it's, I mean, look, the guy is not, isn't the, the guy is not like, the guy's not sitting at a computer for like every every hour of the day clicking a single download at a time. That's way too inefficient. The way I see that he probably downloaded it all in one shot using a, uh, using some built-in uh, built function of the system. So if that's the case, then uh, I think that more could be done there that perhaps uh, would restrict the amount of information one can get at, uh, at a particular moment. Uh, another thing is that uh, some of these emissions, no, not some of these, all of these emissions should have been anonymized. Mm. Uh, a lot of these, uh, I mean, whatever the good doctor need from this information, I, I think in general, I, I just don't see why he would need to know the names mm -hmm. of the individuals uh, in, the, in the registry itself. We, but there was also this, this uh, he needs, uh, or someone needs to contact, right? It's a contact list. So was that one of the reasons why the the names are still there? Because they need to contact these people and get ask them to come in to get an HIV mm. check. But then the the head of the National Public Health Unit yeah. doesn't need. He's yeah, not exactly. the one. He's not right. the frontline guy calling. I mean, I, I imagine <laughs> I imagine he's one of the guys who takes on a more managerial role. Right, right, right. Would probably need to oversee like or or spot trends. Yeah. Um, spot trends, perhaps. Uh, basically analyzing, let's say, policy effects on on uh, HIV. Yeah, so I guess there's like a question of compartmentalizing data. So for example, like my GP and the nurse need to know what my phone number is, but the Minister of Health doesn't need to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, like, know, you know, yeah. like who, yeah. who actually needs this information? Also from what I understand, it was, the leak was because it was on a thumb drive and then and then he got hold of the thumb drive. So how, how did it get on a thumb drive in the first place? I think, I think this situation is also highlighted. Um, well, the people who are working on HIV in Singapore, it's a very small community. It doesn't matter what subcommittee we are working on. It's always the same few people that I meet uh, over and over again. It's a very tight-knit community. But what we are, I think we're missing in this entire discussion um, that's happening so far is that it also highlights that there are certain things that we can never prepare for because of human um, and and what is involved in here we are we're also talking about um, 
they are obviously also battling, they are also victims of poor mental health, they are also victims of their own addiction issues. And it also highlights that there's a lack of conversation, a lack of resources um, allocated to deal with all this, to, to think about all this on a more structural mm -hmm. level that we can think about, okay, we need to think about people who are also probably going through certain issues and, and there's just no way to prevent for things like that, I find. Um, they... I would just like to put it out there that I think that they are also victims um, in this entire situation. They should be treated uh, accordingly for what they've done. Um, yeah. Mm. I think some people had brought up that, you know, so Mackay Ferrero Bushes, it was brought up over and over again that he's a fraudster. And yes, he mm. did um, fake his educational credentials. But then at the same time, the thing about faking the mm. HIV um, test results, mm. Not to condone it, but to also point out that that sort of discrimination where he yeah. wouldn't have been able to get yeah. a visa, wouldn't have been able to get a job, also kind of puts yes. people in this sort of situation. Yeah. So there's a lot of structural um, issues that, that places people in certain higher or, or encourages or behaviours that end up in taking higher risk in behaviour. So things like 377A, things like um, the IDA Act that that does not favour persons living with HIV, that continues to criminalise or frames people living with HIV in such a way that it it villainise them and villainise us, that uh, we become dirty biohazards um, that people need to be wary of. People still hold on to a lot of fear that are not founded anymore. Um, people still hold on to the idea of what HIV used to be in the 80s uh, or in the early 90s when there's very little understanding of what it is. Is it this kind of reminds me of several years back before privacy became a really big issue? Uh, worldwide was uh, I remember reading this argument arguments by several technologies saying that perhaps a more open internet where people share might create a more tolerant world because you know like. When maybe people will start realizing that oh we're all not we're all actually not very perfect. So, but it turns out that stigma doesn't just go away. It takes it takes it takes a long time for for attitudes to change. Um, at the same time, I think this is why privacy is important. Be simply because not I mean not because you necessarily have anything to hide. I mean anything that anything that's questionable that you want to hide. Sometimes it's just that there may be something about you that people judge you on. Mm. I think it's really difficult to like to, to change the social attitude. It takes a really long time, right? So for so that that same week that they announced the the leak of the registry, I was working on editing and preparing an article to publish on new narrative about five children living with HIV in North Sumatra and they had got HIV from their parents who had passed away. And so they were essentially orphans. Um, but then the community found out that they were living with HIV and got them expelled from school because the parents didn't want their kids to be playing with children living with HIV. And one thing that really struck me in the article was that the government had actually sent health unit people to, to the village to brief the parents to say mm. like, you know, it's not so easy to transmit. These are all the facts related to HIV. And it didn't work because they just didn't believe them because the stigma was so ingrained that they didn't believe them. The, um, the journalist who was writing the story had interviewed a mother who was absolutely convinced, even after she had attended the education session, that if a mosquito bit the kid with HIV and then bit my kid, my kid would have HIV. And that's, how, and, and that's why you know these children can't be in the school, they can't be in our community. In fact, yeah. the village had voluntarily um, 
come forward to say that they would clear a corner of the forest to put these five children to live there because they wanted the children to be quarantined, yeah, I mean, essentially. It's, 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 I mean, it's, it's, so actually, it's actually going to be a bit like how superstitions yeah, come you know, about, it's, right? It's like, really pe- pe- hard. People prefer to be safer than sorry, so yeah. even if they're completely misinformed. HIV, I, I find, isn't just about HIV, right? Um, you The facts have been around for a long time. You know, we've been talking about this for 30 years. We've been talking about the same things over and over again. But there's just so much moral judgment because this... Um, this society and, and many others are built around shaming certain behaviors, shaming sex. Um, there's a lot of guilt around it. There's a lot of um, negative association to how HIV is contracted, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of moral judgment towards gay people, towards um, people who use drugs, people who are sex workers, people who purchase sex. So there's a lot of moral judgment associated with this. So there's layers upon layers of stigma that comes with it. And so it's really difficult to to change this. And and that's why I always find HIV as a really, very interesting um, disease from an epidemiological kind of point of view because it really highlights a lot of social structures that if you have if you want to deal with HIV, you need to deal with all these external factors first. We need to talk about we really need to talk about diversity and inclusion. We really need to talk about what it means to be inclusive of the LGBT community or minority group of minority races. We need to be not just talking about them um, from a diversity standpoint, but from an inclusion standpoint. They need to be at the table when we form uh, policies. People living HIV need to be at the table when we talk about policies that affect us for example and that's missing for now yeah i remember it i mean well i remember when i was in school hiv was used as the bogeyman so and you know this wasn't even very young right i was already in polytechnic and i remember they got this um there was this briefing health briefing thing and uh, i don't remember who sent the briefing but the trainer who came in was like oh you know um if you have uh, sex or like premarital sex or if you have a lot of sexual partners, just remember it's not whether your partner has HIV, but it's also about whether everybody that partner has slept with had, had yeah. HIV. And then and then she actually had like a diagram on the slide that was like, it was like it was some sort of multi-level marketing thing. <laughs> where, <laughs> yeah, where like yes, it's not just yes. the person that you slept with, but everybody they slept with, everybody they slept with. And, and like made it so scary. And it was used, and HIV was essentially used as a way to scare young Singaporeans not to have premarital sex. Yes. And it had very little to do with the actual medical effects of yeah. HIV. Yeah. Um, but that kind of, of, of narrative also don't work for a very large group of people who maybe they're not sexually active at that point or because it comes from a very heteronormative um, perspective, right? So at school, I switch off. I'm not going to get pregnant. I'm not going to listen to you. Um, so... And a lot of these dialogues are not happening uh, where it needs to happen. And there's a lot of fear um, talking about sex with, with young people, you know. And this information is not readily made available. Whereas information as, such as porn is, is so readily available. It's everywhere. But sex education isn't. Uh, so, Evan, um, you mentioned earlier the Infectious Diseases Act. Yeah. Um, and, and you talked about it actually... Uh, discriminating discriminating against the mm. LGBT community or, or working against their interests? Could you elaborate on that a bit? Well, the 
infectious, there's a lot of policies that dictate what person living HIV needs to do, right? Uh, we need to come out, we need to, we need to notify this, we need to notify whoever. Um, and part of it stems from the Infectious Disease Act. And, and what it states is that as a person with HIV, I need to notify my sex partners. I need to, I need to get a kind of some sort of approval or, or agreement that, they, that he or she is going to willingly take on this risk before we can engage in sex. So it's a very contractual kind of uh, mm. arrangement that I need to have with my sex partners. Not very sexy. Um, but it also, so it, it dictates that we need to do this. And if we don't, um, there's a chargeable offense, right? But what if we do? What happens if we do and the person says no, and the person goes online and says that, hey, don't have sex with this person, he has HIV. There's nothing we can do about that, right? It also states that anyone, so um, anyone who engages in high-risk sex, um, especially gay men, who it's automatically assumed that um, they may or may not have HIV. So they need to also automatically be included in this and to seek for that permission before they can, uh, they can have sex. Wait, so you're saying basically all gay men are classified as high-risk yes. under this... Wow. Okay. Statistically, if you look at the numbers, yes, because statistically, anal sex has it carries a higher risk of HIV, um, contracting HIV, because um, because biologically the, the anal walls are a lot thinner. It's not made for sex, so there's a much higher risk of contracting uh, STIs. So, from a numbers scientific point of view, there is certain you know um, there's a certain there's a certain truth to that um, but right, it, right. but from a numbers point of view I mean you can justify yeah. a lot of discrimination and, purely from a statistical yeah. point of view I mean and I, I'm sure those some of these policies were put in place um, they were put in place for a long time ago right when medical advances weren't as as what it is today and I'm quite sure there was some good to that um, that has been put in place because it, it does protect certain people from, say, um, rape. It does protect people who knowingly spread the virus because um, they are angry, because they are vengeful. And so it allowed the government to actually step in and say, okay, let's, we can do something about those people. But it, it's a blanket guide. Um, it's only part one of the equation. The, the second part where it actually protects other people living HIV who, who are generally very nice people, there's no, there's no safety net for us. Right, and it happens on a on a regular daily basis. Whatever we are hearing today, uh, with regards to this leak, it's just all compounded because of the leak. All the issues that we are talking about, um, employment, insurance, um, relationships, disclosure, this happen on a regular basis and has been happening for the last thirty years. It's nothing new. It's just that it's it's so intense now because of the leak. Do you think that that this leak will then provide? a greater push for the government to do things like um, bring in anti-discrimination leg legislation. You know, some NGOs immediately put out press releases saying we want immediate anti-discrimination legislation. But do you think the government is, would be more responsive to it? Hmm. Um, well, we're definitely hoping that this situation would highlight and, and bring at least to this to the forefront. It's really, it's really quite depressing because um, we had a really good uh, Singapore AIDS conference last year and for the first time um, a lot of organizations in Singapore including uh, ourselves, Project X, uh, T-Project, uh, Okachaga, a lot of other organizations have come together, uh, government as well, um, to sit together 
and to work out a blueprint to end HIV by 2030 because we firmly believe that as a very small, very smart country, we can do that. We have the resources, necessary resources to do that. But, and then for this to happen, it really just sets back so many years of hard work that we have done in terms of um, making, pushing forward uh, policies or pushing forward education awareness, you know, in, in, in the public realm. In the public realm, it it's it re, I'm quite that's what re, that's, that's what's really making me very mad. Um, it, it and yeah, <laughs> the, you know, everyone on registry is a victim, right? But yeah, th- but because of this, life is gonna be. I mean, do you think that there's gonna be more public sympathy for people living HIV after this, or you feel like you know it's gonna it's it's in in the long term, the impact of this is going to be negative. I think it's up to us. It's up to Singapore now to decide how we want to take this forward. Whether we want to allow it to become a witch hunt where we start looking among us who has HIV or we come together and say that we have a plan and we want to move forward with this plan. These are the gaps now, right? Um, it, has, it has really enlarged where the gaps are uh, under the magnitude microscope and we can actually start doing something about them because all these things are not new somewhere on this planet one country would have a policy that's in place that we can use to adapt to you know what we need to achieve here so i we we're definitely as an organization um we have been we have been very clear about what we hope this what the ministry can do about this right um, we are incredibly thankful for all the calls from, from the ministry for the stigmatization. We are thankful for ILA who stepped up and say that the insurance companies will never do something with this information, even if they have this information. We have had so many companies, um, small, small, medium enterprises, uh, big MNCs, stepping forward, signing a pledge to say that they will not terminate persons living HIV and they will start looking at putting in place proper policies um, to protect persons living HIV. So we have all of this really good things coming out of it um it's just so we need now that the ministry have called for action we need to see those action where it comes does afa point to any like best practices in other countries that we could look at yes so in 2017 um we actually raised something about uh, what the fast track cities is and so it's a it's a list of cities that have signed on to this pledge and say that uh as a fast track city we're going to put in place a lot of we're going to allocate certain resources. We're going to change certain things so that we can address um, systemic and discrimination. We're going to we're going to address systemic um, gaps in education, sexual education, especially making sure people who need to access information, medication, and treatment can access all this. Um, so it's we we have seen many countries who have put these things in place, cut their new HIV notification by more than half. Countries such as London, Paris, Amsterdam. Um, San Francisco, C- Sydney, cities, right? No, yeah, cities, right. yeah, cities have achieved really good results from this. Yeah, well, if you look at cities, um, a lot of these cities are also where the concentration of HIV is. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we there are there are a lot of very good work being done globally, right? And we, Singapore, can actually be one of the leaders in this. We ended SARS. We one of the first country who ended. Who had something to do with SARS? And we can do that with HIV. We firmly believe that we can do that. Why are we not doing it? 
I guess, you know, apart from the the stigma, what are the barriers um, to achieving this? Is it purely government policy and changing the stigma? You know, what are some of the barriers that prevent us from achieving this? I think one of the largest barriers is apathy, that HIV is so far it's something that it doesn't concern me because I do not subscribe to certain things. I am not of a deviant, um, you know, community, or I don't, I don't do this kind of things. And even if if I do, I will not publicly say that I do because there's so much shame in it. There's so much shame in in, in purchasing sex, for example. Um, so there's a lot of all that barriers that we need to address. There's the there's that we need to we need to get people to understand that it's never just about HIV. And even if it's not about HIV, and if you're not involved with HIV, um, or if you're not living with HIV, you don't know anyone living with HIV, this is a public health issue that if we come together, we can actually do something about it. We can stop the spread of HIV um, in Singapore. right? At the same time, when we do this, we can actually address a lot of the gaps. I think there are so much negative kind of knee-jerk reaction because I think a lot of Singaporeans don't feel secure. Um, as a citizen, we feel like we don't have much rights. We feel like we are constantly trying to grapple for jobs, for basic security needs. And so there's a lot of very knee-jerk kind of xenophobic reaction towards, um, you know, anything. And, and, and I think we need people to understand that instead of fighting it, uh, accepting certain things and actually coming together to work towards a common goal, has it's so it's going to be so much more productive it's it's going to be it's going to have so much more ripple effect on people's lives but is there a fear that you know now that there's been this leak that it would actually create another barrier that now people are afraid to go and get tested because they're afraid yeah. that if i make it on the registry what if the registry is leaked again at some yeah. point yeah we have people who have Social workers have told us that, you know, um, in the first 48 hours, 72 hours, people have called in and said that, I don't want to seek treatment anymore. I don't want to come back to you anymore. And there's just so much fear. Thankfully, I think people still trust in, in some of the things that we do, such as the anonymous test sites that we that we run. Attendance has not decreased. And I'm very thankful for, you know, all the volunteers who have put in so much hard work to help us maintain that kind of reputation. But we are hearing people who don't access services such as ourselves, Coming to AFA um, is a problem already, um, and that's where we were so it was so important for us to make sure that they can access inf- uh, information, they can access support and care everywhere else. Uh, if they have a problem coming to us, they we have patients who have stopped going for treatment, who have stopped accessing their primary care uh, givers. Do you think it would be? Do you think it would improve people's confidence if the government is a lot more transparent with how? Uh, how data like that is handled? I think so. I think if the government is more transparent about how our information is handled, then it's going to instill some form of confidence. But I think what they need to do is also then to step forward and say, um, this is the things that we're going to do in in the future, right? And what we need to do in the future to not just secure the data, but to actually put in place policies to protect yeah, because I think one of the I think one of the first uh, first reaction I, I remember reading about the government was that the first thing they said was that we will now require two people uh, we will now require the presence of two two different pe- uh, pe- uh, people to to access the data. So now you cannot like 
I mean, you you could not access it just just with your own account. But it seems to me that just that that doesn't really attack the problem uh, at a systemic syst- a systemic level. Uh, because the way I see it is that if your system can be compromised by a single person, it is not very well designed in terms of security. Actually, this is a good point to segue then, Kai Xiong, into a discussion about how do we prevent this sort of data leaks? What can, you know, governments, organizations, but also us ordinary citizens do to prevent our data getting out there? To be frank, I'm not a, I'm not a very optimistic person. So, <laughs> so see, see, I think I mean I I I did mention at the start of the podcast uh, that a lot of you mentioned once it's leaked out, it's really hard. I mean, it's not you can you can't chase it back, right? It's how you can't prosecute, you can't even really prosecute the people who who start sharing the information online. And so, okay, right, fine, you can find the you you might be able to jail the perpetrator, but the information is still going to be out there. It's going to spread and so on. It might end up in the black market eventually, even if you take it off uh, all the legitimate file sharing sites. So it's going to be out there in some form. I mean, this is not really to scare people, but this is this is something that doesn't just apply to this particular case, but almost all kinds of data you might be thinking of. This is kind of the effect, effect of, of, of the modern information age. So how do you prevent data leaks then? That's actually pretty hard. It is a pretty hard problem because it sounds like the the solution is not to give out our data. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that is of course the that is the most extreme thing and most safe thing you can possibly do. But that'll be like saying that well, if I want to be safe, don't connect. I, I won't connect to the internet. Yeah. <laughs> that, that really makes your computer safe, but uh, but it's not very practical. So so I think that I mean security in any kind of security system, the weakest link is not usually technology; it's it's people. So. There's such a term as social engineering in uh, in information security, meaning that uh, if, the, if the technology is too hard to crack, you you target people instead because people make mistakes. So people make mistakes; they are prone to all kinds of biases. In this particular case, this person was very angry and decided to do something about it. So these are so it's it's pretty hard to it, yeah it's pretty pretty hard to design a very comprehensive system that that would against all kinds of uh, you know leaks so obviously the the the, the best thing you can do it's uh, the best thing really you can do is what Kirsten actually mentioned earlier is to um, share only what's needed absolutely necessary um, the other thing is re- it's also um, being able to compartmentalize information who needs to know what and so on and uh, there needs to be some some kind of protocol that ensures that that ensures that information not are not passed around um, to people who are not authorized to receive them. Um, beyond that, beyond that, to be honest, I I I, I can't really recommend anything that's it's besides besides not sharing it in the first place. Yeah, I mean that 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 sounds like that makes a lot of sense, right? You assume that the weak links are, are human beings, human frailty, and so you minimize human contact with the information to you know only on an absolutely need to know basis yeah yeah i mean with new narrative right we deliberately don't collect information so that even if we are hacked or someone makes a mistake we don't have the information to, yeah, exactly. to give out you know we only uh collect like name email and country of our members you know we, we don't know their addresses we don't know you know their age we don't know all this standard information that other media sites other websites just collect and exploit we don't collect any of that 
because we thought about it and we're like, why do we even need that? Right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. um, I, I don't know whether you, you, you've noticed um, since I think some, some like me last year, I think you started seeing sites that ask you for permission to accept cookies. So actually, this this was a this was a consequence of Europe passing a very uh, comprehensive uh, privacy uh, regulation. And uh, the thing about it is that you, you, so something you really did notice is that um, a lot of times you 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 cannot make that pop up, asking for your consent go away without. I mean, you can't make it. You can't make the pop up go away uh, um, uh, without actually accepting the, the 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 terms there. So a lot of times you kind of just click through ah, whatever like. Does this pop up in my way? I want to read this news. Like, so I'll get my way. Just click and so on. So does that mean consent, right? Yeah. So and and it also highlights the, the other fact um, that actually people tend to take the way, easy way out. I mean, I mean, Europe's uh, privacy regulation is, is praised worldwide by privacy advocates, and uh, even with that, people still take the easy way out. Like, oh, okay, it's just you know, it's just simpler to just collect the data. I mean, I. It just comes it, literally when you when you serve the website, it, the server will just lock your your for example your IP and so on. You actually need additional work to anonymize and delete and and manage this data securely. So it's actually a lot. It's actually a lot more work to make sure the data is secure. So which is why a lot of people kind of skim out it. So which is also kind of the reason why I'm always a bit slightly paranoid. Like, mm. which I'm always a, a bit unwilling to share my uh, information with a lot of these uh, services. Mm. Precisely because of, because of the economics behind uh, uh, information security. So, I mean, the other thing is that the software, software correctness is a very difficult thing to achieve. Um, as a programmer, like some people would say that it's, it's, it's probably the most difficult branch of applied mathematics we've ever seen because you need to be sure that if you have you have a, if you have a system that's supposed to be secure you need to you need to know that you need to know that it's attack there's no nobody made a mistake somewhere in the design because it just needs you just needs you, you just need one single mistake that people might start exploiting and uh, like i said this is a very difficult thing to do so and uh which means that if something is difficult to do, then it means that somebody at some point will make a mistake. So it's almost invariably some data will get leaked somehow. So in Singapore, we also have a really strong data privacy law, but there's a specific exemption for the government. So wh why does our government need all this information? I mean, you know, we have this whole smart nation and uh, I, I, I have no idea what that actually you know, is in a concrete sense, but there's a whole philosophy about, you know, somehow using data to improve our lives. So, you know, can, can you, can, would you be able to, to explain to our listeners, like, what, why does the, our government need this information? What what do they do with it? I suppose, I suppose for a lot of governments, uh, the traction of information is simply that, well, I mean, the old, the old saying goes, right, information is power. So, some of the things you can do with information is like, oh, let's say, let's say you're the Ministry of Transport, for example, you might want to know I mean, it would be very handy to know where cars are, where your vehicles are on the road all the time. It it is very convenient because then you can. I mean, then then you can you can you can you can, you can distill it down to uh, different forms and analyze it in different ways, pass it into computer systems. Uh, that have very intelligent algorithms that might. Might tell you where, uh, where and how traffic jams might occur. Uh, how to, how to how to how to improve traffic flow. Um, things like that, so it is very convenient. Like, uh, but but it, but that's not very. 
but that's actually pretty oppressive when you think about it, right? Like, mm-hmm. imagine yeah. that you, you're whatever you are, whatever you are, whatever you drive your vehicle to, the government knows. I don't even need to drive a vehicle. There, like, le- there are more than forty cameras from my estate to the MRT station, and it's a five minutes walk. And the official, uh, I think, quite a lot of them are like facial recognition kind of. Yeah, I think if you, but like, if you see it from only certain perspective, you can see how it's so alluring, right? Because if you were like a city planner, if you're yeah. like one of those plan, this this idea of big data and being able to know. So, for example, on the buses. The, some some buses have the sign that says even if you're on a concession card where you pay monthly, please tap your EasyLink in and out when you go off the bus, even though it makes no difference to you in terms of charging. Because when you tap in and out, it logs you and then it allows the bus service to actually know how many people are on the bus and when is there, when when are there full buses and when are there... And so they, they actually you know put little stickers there that say please tap in and out so we have this data. And so you can see from that perspective, like, oh, you know, if we knew all these things, it would become so much efficient, so much easier to to plan. And then even from like a journalist perspective, sometimes you can think that it's very alluring because I was at a journalism conference last year where a journalist referred to other journalists as like, we're just a, we're just a whole bunch of pack rats. You know, like we, we love to hoard things because you don't know when yeah. like this guy you interviewed will turn out to be like some sort of whistleblower. And then your interview from five years ago suddenly becomes like, you know, gold mine scoop. And so like, you know, he was saying, actually he was saying this in a security workshop for journalists, like how do we even protect protect it when journalists by nature are such pack rats <laughs> that we hoard everything and we might not even know how to secure the things that we hoard. And and so I think from from many different perspectives, you can see why it's, you know, why it's so good. You know, like if you watch... Uh, police dramas like CSI mm-hmm. you you kind of feel like oh yeah having a lot of yeah. CCTV is really handy because you see the CSI yeah, they well, caught the serial murder but you don't think about the flip side yeah. of like what what is this also being used for it kind of reminds me of, uh, of a or quarrel I had with my parents uh, when the <clears throat> when the speed limits for e-scooters, basically uh, e-scooters or in gen- uh, personal, personal mobility device in general was lower down to 10 kilometers per hour last year I know it's the start of this year um, so one of the criti- one of the one of the criticisms I had was that well you already had a speed limit, a slightly higher speed limit, but the problem was was not that the, the, pro- the problem was not the speed limit per se. It was the, the fact that it was very difficult to enforce. So so obvious. So the, my the first thing my parents responded with was that well just install CCTV then this kind of just solves the problem. But the thing is that they don't see the flip side of like and these are and I, I I'll be open and say my 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 parents are not. I'm not very not I'm not big government supporters, and yet, like, for safety, they would they they seem to be they seem to be very ready to trade their 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 privacy. I think we assume the benevolence of government too easily, when we forget that our governments, our civil servants, I'm sure you know, almost everyone is honest and wants the best for us. But two things, right? One what the best for us is differs very much. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and what one person believes is the right thing is very different from what someone else might believe is the right thing. But of course, second, you only need one person to betray that trust. As we've seen with the HIV leak, you only need, you know, one person. And in a system without adequate protections, then the opportunity for abuse is immense. 
Yeah, I think in in Singapore there is a high level of trust and and a high level of willingness. So like your parents to to from the security rationale make a lot of concessions to our own sort of liberties and privacy. So you know the 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 fact that Singaporeans are fine with the sheer number of CCTV cameras in MRT stations. Um, you know the in fact like there were citizens who were lobbying their MPs to install more CCTV cameras in their housing blocks to catch smokers or people who throw things from their windows. And in fact there was at one point they they were discussing like this camera to to catch like high rise littering, but then they decided it it couldn't work because the camera would literally be pointing into your house. Um but but yeah there are so many things. Well I think earlier they were talking about, you know, how could we now that we have thermal cameras to catch people smoking where they shouldn't in public, is there a way that we could catch people smoking in their homes? And then they, they decided that that's really illogical and difficult to enforce. But there, there seems to be a high um, level of willingness to have more surveillance because of security, in the name of security. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, this is actually true. In, it, is, it is in general true about Singapore's uh, laws, actually, we, we think broader. Um, so one of, like earlier when earlier I was saying I was I was kind of alluding to the economics of uh, implementing uh, privacy. Like let's say let's say if we were to go back to the example of say uh, company example of, say traffic traffic optimization for example like the fact that um, if if you if if somebody had a choice of uh, collecting real time data of everyone non anonymous. Uh, uh, Information that's not already anonymized, but basically information about everybody, how they're behaving at every at, at every moment of time. Um, that I mean, if the person had a choice, it, 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 uh, there's no particular reason why he would settle for anonymized on, anonymized data, because first of all, first of all, you you lose something there. You see, like a lot of times you feel like if I just anonymize the data, I feel like, mm, I don't know. Maybe I just need that. Who knows? Like maybe I, I just yeah, need this. Yeah, you might need it at some point. At some point, and so so why 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 would I like you know? And this system takes time to to set up. So like why would I why would I uh, why would I hamper myself in the future? So so I think the key point I really want to get across is that in designing these systems, privacy must be uh, one of the one of the objective, one of the uh, one of the values. Um, and I also want to point out that security and when we talk about safety, security, and so far, it's not necessarily mutually exclusive with uh, privacy. So, so yeah, so um, because it, it is, it's just way too easy to trade. It's way too easy to trade privacy for a lot of all kinds of convenience and so on. It's, it's a false trade-off, right? Yeah, it's a exactly. false dichotomy. You know, if, if these hacks are so easy, they make us less safe, not not more. Yeah, exactly. And I think it, it goes also goes back to something we talked about in a previous episode where we talked about how if you want to change behavior, right, in Singapore, our government, and I think uh, this attitude has infected a lot of people, is that, oh, you've got to have harsher penalties. Yeah. You know, you've got to clamp down on it. It's this, this very old school caveman, you know, or, you know, if I punch this person harder, they won't. They won't do it, you know, if, they, if I make them fear more, you know, when actually evidence, you know, points to you, you need to change values, right? You yeah, need to exactly, change yeah. society, right? You know, it's criminalizing murder hasn't stopped murder, <laughs> right? And 
if we want people to to change their behavior, um, then we need to think about a far more comprehensive approach that takes into account our values and what kind of society we're building and you know try and and change how people think and and um, approach these these issues so i think in a previous episode we talked about uh, uh, animal cruelty right and how um you know making the penalties harsher is not going to stop animal cruelty creating a society which values the sanctity of of all life and treats all living beings with respect that will change things and so it's the same thing here, right? You make penalties harsher for hacking or whatever. Sure, you know, uh, that may have some effects. But ultimately, what we need is to create a society which values privacy, which um, acts in ways which protect our privacy and respects each other's privacy instinctively without even thinking about it, right? But of course, you know, uh, a government which wants data, which hoovers up data to use for their purposes is not going to do that. And that goes back to another point I, I, I made recently online, which is we have a government and I think also a culture that's become obsessed with efficiency, with measuring outcomes, right? And because they prioritize efficiency as the sort of holy grail, it takes greater priority than human life. You know, that's, I think, you know, Lee Kuan Yew said, right? We're just digits, right? And if, you know, the life of one digit is eliminated to make the other digits better, then then he would do that. But if you think about the consequence of that, right, it means it justifies all sorts of things in pursuit of this optimization and efficiency above the any sort of respect for, for human life. And, you know, by the same token, you in order to achieve your KPIs, achieve your measurements, to meet this this need to constantly measure everything to prove efficiency, you've got to hoover up all this data and get all these people's data. So the, the whole s- structure is it really disincentivizes privacy. But I think you also have to like bust that myth a bit, right? That the So like uh, respecting privacy doesn't mean that you're less secure, but on the flip side, collecting more data doesn't mean you're more secure. Yeah, in fact, yeah, in fact there's a, there's a, there, there, was a, there was a debate raging in Australia because Australia recently passed legislation that requires... Uh, uh, software, I think it was software companies or IT companies to to implement. I think they were supposed to implement backdoors into their system so that the government can access. Uh, so that government have a have a have a have a back channel to access uh, information that's supposedly secure. But of course, the one of the biggest argument against it is simply that well, sure. I mean, if it's only the government accessing, it maybe right. But even the government can make mistakes that. Right? Like mm. these, so like what what happens if it falls into the wrong hands? So <laughs> I think it was that same argument when the FBI wanted Apple to build a backdoor so that they could access yeah, the exactly. iMessages yeah. of that shooter, and and you know Apple was like the problem is I can't make a one-off backdoor right once there's a backdoor there's a backdoor and yeah. then anybody can exploit that, and I think during the when when Snowden leaked all these like mass suspicionless surveillance also there was a lot of talk about how. Hoovering up that sheer amount of data doesn't make you more secure because how are you going to process all this stuff? How are you going to process all these CCTV cameras, all these emails, all these phone calls, and actually find, you know, the the one extremist or the one terrorist? You know, this sort of needle in a haystack method is not a good method to to make places more secure. Yeah. So um, so one of the ways people try to 
one of the ways people try to tackle the the huge amounts of data coming in it's through algorithms right so um, the problem with a lot of these algorithms is that uh, sometimes we don't necessarily understand how it works it's true it's true in the sense like we, we know that it, it kind of works but I mean um, one of the one of the hottest term right now is something called deep learning so deep learning basically we're, we're talking about systems that uh, that they have an architecture that emulates the brain neurons of the brain so uh, this system can given fixed given inputs given fixed sets of inputs and and corresponding outputs they will learn a certain pattern and they can apply it they can apply the learned pattern into on, on new information but the problem the problem with it is sometimes that uh, sometimes biases creep in and sometimes you're not really sure what the the, the computer is actually learning because ultimately when you look at the system itself it's just a it's just a bunch of weights it's like it's basically a bunch of uh, it's essentially what the result is a is a it's a weighted sum basically and few few people can tell you exactly okay this this represents this and this like this like like this compute like perhaps this system values this a bit more values that data point a bit more so it's very very hard to, to 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 deconstruct it and figure out what it's actually thinking and one of the funniest joke i've heard about Deep learning is that uh, I think I think it was the uh, I think it was in the uh, I think it was the Department of Defense in in the United States where they tried to train they tried to tra- train a machine intelligence to to differentiate between Russian and American tanks, so they started feeding information about uh, pictures of Russian tanks and inform- uh, pictures of American tanks, but it didn't turn out that it wasn't yes yes for one thing I mean on the face of it it does appear that it, it will identify American tanks and Russian tanks correctly so that they can tell who the enemy is from afar, right? So uh, the problem then was that instead of just identifying Russian tanks, they also they basically flag all old photos of tanks <laughs> as Russian because 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 uh, the pictures of Russian tanks they, f- they fed into the system were basically low resolution, not so well taken photos for obvious reasons. So I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an enemy it's an enemy unit, so you just don't have as good information about it. So, so sometimes you're not even really sure what it's actually learning. So you need to be extremely aware and counter a lot of these biases. So, uh, so the question is really like, how does it play out when? I mean, earlier we were talking about social stigma and, and discrimination, and so on. how does it play out? Um, when when systems like that make decisions. I read this article about I can't remember the name of the company, but it was like quite a big tech company, like like a Silicon Valley sort of company, who decided that because of the the sheer number of job applications they get every year, they wanted to teach AI to help them pass the job applications and and basically be the first the first level gatekeeper and then just only forward them the top the top applicants, right? So they they fed the algorithm their previous hires and then they put in the new hires and then they discovered that they hadn't intended this but the algorithm started immediately cutting out women and people of color because the bias the bias of like hiring white men you know was yeah, it's just in, simply in extra, the system it's just, right? so yeah it just extra, extra, extrapolates to the existing yeah bias, so it, it just started to so clearly somewhere in, along this way the algorithm decided that if you're a woman that gives you less weightage than if you're a white man so like they yeah that just didn't work because you know, there's only so much that you can actually teach, but when your own human bias. <laughs> Which goes, I think, uh, I think, I think, uh, PJ did mention about the problem with statistics, right? Because statistics need to be properly contextualized. Mm. So, so effectively, these these machines work on statistics. Mm. So yeah, 
and these machines are and machines are not good at contextualizing. You need people, human oversight. But what what do we do in Singapore then, right? You know, with these problems, if if we feel like you know, with private companies, if you feel that you know your your Huawei phone or whatever is 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 not secure, you switch to another company. But as citizens of Singapore, we can't just switch our government provider. You know, <laughs> although we wish we could, but. Well, elections in, is coming up. <laughs> yeah, but you know, as elections are not free and fair in yeah. Singapore, <laughs> and so how do we protect ourselves? It, I have no idea. I mean, we saw from like so prior to the the HIV registry leak, there was the SingHealth data breach, which is still the biggest yeah. you know data yeah. breach of scale, in yeah. in Singapore. One point five million, you know. And, and you know a lot of, a big deal was made about how like Lee Sien Long also was targeted, but I don't think that's the point. The point is one point five million people, and I remember after that breach, there were a lot of doctors who were very upset because they said that you know this is exactly the sort of thing that they were worried about when the government was telling doctors to forward their medical data to a centralized health registry. And you know the, the government still wants to do this health registry. It's just it's just been postponed a bit because of the of the breach. But if you go to the website, it's it's still like oh, wouldn't it be so great? One patient, one medical record. So no matter where you go, whether it's a hospital or a clinic, everybody the doctor immediately has your whole medical history. And yeah, there are situations where you can see how that might be useful, right? But then at the same time, it's also such a dangerous, risky thing to say. Let's put everybody's medical data in this one registry. That's the best advice I can give to people. Is really like people who are implementing these. It's really slow down. <laughs> like people are just in a hurry. Like oh, let's just do it. This sounds like a really good idea. Let's just let's just do it immediately and so on. But without like without like really thinking through what happens if these these data go uh, get leaked out and so on and so forth. The the various threats. The various. Uh, 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 the various risks that people, uh, the new risks that will that come with, with new systems like this, because new systems, I mean, new risk comes, new risk comes with new systems. So, yeah, I don't. I, I feel like a lot of these are going too fast, and, and even people like also who are rel- people like me, who's relatively savvy in terms of managing uh, personal information, is that it's very hard to even tell where this will go. Actually, like I mean, we know. I mean. We can think of the most extreme situation, but but that doesn't really help you because you know, like it kind of just like paranoia kind of just paralyzes you, and and and, and I feel like I just I just personally feel like we really really slow down and really see where where we're going with 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 uh, with the kind of uh, um, the kind of the, the scale of data collection we are heading towards. Yeah, I think the like the thing that I get concerned about when our personal data protection law excludes the government is then I'm not able to give informed consent for like specific scenarios, right? Consent is supposed to be for specific things in specific contexts. So like I might consent to give the Ministry of Health some sort of medical record, but that doesn't mean I will consent to like the Ministry of Home Affairs or the police or the immigration authorities to suddenly have it. But then we have no law at the moment to stop this sort of inter-government agency just handing off data. Uh, it's completely legal for think, them I to do that. I think there's no law that you can stop the government from collecting data from you directly at the moment, right? I mean, I guess I could, you know, 
technically refuse to go to polyclinics. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, firstly, how, how kind of realistic is that for most people? But also, like, you know, for that specific reason, you're like, okay, I will go to a polyclinic. But then you, that doesn't mean that you want, like, months down the road for this record to pop up when the police decides to, like, get something on you, yeah. you know, look you up and then they can find you. And so I think that makes it really difficult because it means that once you engage with the government or any sort of government service as a citizen, you are expected to have given blanket consent to like your data being used for anything that the government thinks is worthwhile. I, I can't help but feel like a lot of this, are, we are either, we're viewing it from a kind of a lens of fear. It started with that and the fear of terrorism, the fear of the fear that something might, someone might commit a crime and that's why we need to collect more data about information, we need to collect information about people, we need to track where they are, we need to track every single car where they are. The same thing with the leak. We People are also reacting in fear. People are also, um, there's a lot of shaming culture going on. You know, they want, they want to sue the, they want to sue the ministry, they want to, they want transparency, they're calling for this and that and I think that the entire culture and the entire whatever we're doing just just highlights that we we keep we stuck in this system of fear and shame and fear and shame and insecurities, and I and I I wonder if if we view this whole thing from a more compassionate kind of lens, how would things change a little bit? How would how would collection of data, because even we can't change our government right um, provider you said. Well, um, not, not easily. Not easily, not, correct. But yeah. we we are also stuck in a system where there there may be laws, or there may not be laws. But um, because it's not a completely independent, there is no check and balances put in place as well. So they can change the laws, right? Um, we feel like we don't have as citizens. We feel like we don't have enough rights to have a say in things, and and. I feel like if we a lot more, if we consult more, right? So like you said, slow things down and consult more. We might actually have those solutions. It may not be near future, but some dialogues need to fail. And and I think we're too so, so, we're so scared of certain dialogues failing that we don't even allow that chance to happen. Um, we, don't allow, uh, we don't even allow the pe- people the chance to have those conversations to take place. Yeah, I think, you know, the government has often said, like, you know, uh, in response to criticism about smart nation and data breaches and things, they're like, oh, but not adopting IT is not the solution. But then, you know, as a citizen who is concerned, I'm not saying don't adopt IT. I'm not saying that Singapore should just go back to, like, locking things into, like, boxes with multiple padlocks, right? I'm not saying this sort of thing. I'm saying, yes, we adopt IT, but we should have more thought into into how these systems are designed so like and, and i'm not you know for all i know the civil servants might be thinking a lot but because there's no open tr- and transparent sort of process of consultation and discussion that i can see i don't know what's going on behind closed doors in all the ministries i don't know how much they are discussing or not discussing or you know so all we see is the breach when it happens and then we go how could this have happened and they said no we've we fixed this but you don't really know exactly so i think that creates a lot of um suspicion and distrust that's actually really unhealthy you know people don't feel like they can trust that you know all the proper processes are in place they don't feel like they have a voice to even 
bring it up if they are worried about it. And so there's just a lot of unhappiness that could actually have been channeled into better engagement. You know, and to pick up on a few things that people have said, you know, it's uh, we have a government that actually from the very moment it got into power in 59 prided itself on delivering outcomes, right? Speed, efficiency, and, you know, the ability to deliver and they were happy to sacrifice openness, transparency, consultation. This was the biggest criticism of the PAP in 1960 and it's one of the biggest you know, criticisms of the PAP in 2019. And uh, during my, my, uh, after my lecture at Cambridge, actually, I was talking about you know, consultation and transparency. And, and one question I got was, well, how do you guarantee outcomes then? Right? And Avian was saying, you know, we have to accept that sometimes these things fail. And I'll go a step further and I'd say sometimes, you know, failure is a good outcome. Right, we we have to move past this idea that something has to happen in order for progress to be made or in order for good decisions to be made. It it's a concrete thing. Sometimes things have to fail, and that's the best outcome because all the available options really might be the wrong options, you know. And so we we need to change this whole mindset that you know. Again, coming back to this whole idea of efficiency and. Um, KPIs, right? And it's infected not just, you know, it started out as a way to improve economic outcomes and market capitalism. It's infected our whole entire society and how we see the world and how we conceive of, of, of everything we do. And it's, it's so toxic that yeah. we are now sacrificing human welfare. On Failure the, on, is yeah. progress. Can or be part progress. of progress. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's no sense in going faster if you're heading the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good way of putting it. I think we miss, you know, it when we are so focused on outcomes, we we miss the fundamentals. So you know, when we talk about oh, how can we implement a cashless society? How can we implement a satellite ERP tracking? You know, the the focus on how to execute and implement really loses really causes us to forget like what about someone taking a step back and going but why though why are we doing this what what is this you know like one joke that i have with friends is that every ministry needs to have like one guy in the room whose job is to just put his hand up and go but why though yeah. <laughs> like, like why is this happening like why are you doing this why this poster why can, this can, slogan can we, why get, this? can we get all the political parties contesting next election put it in the manifesto <laughs> just but why though? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah i mean like you know when we talked about the cashless society and there was like this flurry because Lee Long mentioned it and then there was this flurry of coverage. A lot of it seemed to be like, we should do it because China already has it and then it looks kind of embarrassing if China doesn't, we don't. But it's just like, but look at the context in China also. And also it's not exactly going to work out super well. Like there's a lot of very scary stuff happening in China that you wouldn't necessarily want to import into Singapore. And... Um, so we we really kind of miss the sort of fundamentals of why do you want to do this? Everybody's just like, oh yeah, we must achieve this, 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 and and then we we lose sight of you know why we're doing all this for. But it's also like a false dichotomy, right? You know, it's not it's not collect or don't collect. It's how you collect. It's what what the process of collection is. Is what's the safeguards, right? It's 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 
the whole range of action, activity, values, attitudes around collecting data, you know, and then if you can then have transparency and accountability and sell that, you know, and, and then people can then make a sort of broadly informed consent about that, maybe systemically through the ballot box or something. Right. So, you know, it's just, it, you know, this, this sort of <laughs> narrow for the greater good, it, it's, it's, it's far too, um, you know, it's, um, what do you call it? It's just a false dichotomy. See, I think earlier on, I'm not sure whether I said this earlier on, but, uh, or during our discussion that the, the, the people working on HIV is a really, very small team. Um, everyone kind of knows everyone. We're really good friends with each other. And I think, there was certain trust given to people who were managing all this. Um, and for a long time, I have been part of the team of people who was trying to instill a lot of trust in the local care system. When I first joined, when I first when I was diagnosed and I started seeking care in Singapore, um, I would say that uh, the care system and quality of care here was nothing compared to some of our neighboring countries, such as uh, Bangkok, for example. They were, they were leaps and bounds ahead of us, right? But today, before this leak, I can actually say very firmly, and we have done quite a good job linking people to care because there was a certain level of trust that we have built up with the communities that we serve. Um, and we have been telling them that, you know, yes, you have to give your name to the government. Yes, um, this and that. Um, but they, we have always had a very good track record and we have had pretty good track record um, when it comes to this. The government hasn't used this information in a way that that um, threatens every other individual. I mean, yes, they have used this information against people who have knowingly um, spread the, the virus uh, on a malicious kind of level. And so from that lens, then yes, a registry like that makes sense. It has been put to good use, for example. Uh, and in this case, that it has, it's not a leak or a breach because the person who have done it is... There's, it's. I don't think there's any system in place that that could have planned for something like that. Um, I mean, there are now now that the world and Singapore is a little bit more aware of what big data and how we can manage it and how and so we have, a lot of conversations are having uh, happening around it, and so that that trust has also been broken. The trust that we've been so hard at work trying to build over the last 10 years has been broken so far. Uh, it's just so easy and so fragile. And I really don't know whether... I, I don't question the need for a a registry of some sort uh, because it can be put to good use. But who's using it and how? who's good is this? And now that we are also becoming a lot more aware that the, the people around us have been better um, vocabulary as to how we can then better manage this data and then how then we can demand for better management of this data going forward. Um, I think it's it's about that because if we go back to greater good or, or not good at all, or so there's again a whole shaming um, culture going on around that and it's just very unhealthy. If, if we look at this and if the leak happened and instead of immediately jumping to 
we need to persecute this guy. The conversation becomes, hey, I understand that you're angry and you've done something. Can we talk about that? You know, the thing that you did. And why are you so angry? What can we do to help you uh, become less angry? And then get to a point where he actually understands that the thing he did was not acceptable. And then then we can carry out the necessary, um, you know, punitive measure, whatever it is, for that. But we're not... We're jumping straight to a punishment. We're jumping straight to... We need to punish this guy. We need to punish um, his husband. We need to punish the government. Instead of just even saying, Hey, look, we understand this, this has happened. I know my data was leaked as well. But what can we do about this better going forward? In a more compassionate kind of narrative. Because it feels like right now they're trying to secure their, you know, like... They're basically trying to cover their backs. At yeah. the moment, like, you know. Yeah, they're doing that because there's so much fear around it, right? There's so much insecurity. The the citizens are reacting in such a way that they're de- we're demanding for certain things to be done. You need to be, you need to step down. You need to do this. You need to do that. Um. So they are naturally every every single person is is insecure. We are all insecure about something, and it's a natural fact, and it's paradoxical. Because the more we fear, the more we try and control it, the more unmanageable things become. But if we let loose of this, okay, my it's a, it's a it's paradoxical. So people ask me why I come out. I come out publicly for a very selfish reason, so that I don't have to come out ever again. It's paradoxical. It's it. There's a lot of fear going over that first hump, but once I cross that threshold, it it instantly becomes so much easier to navigate what living with HIV means for me, at least. If in the preparation for my coming out, we dealt with all the same things that anyone deals with, um, the potential of my parents um, you know, kicking me out, the potential of disgrace, the potential of shame, the potential of losing employment in the future, all of that, we dealt with all of that leading up to my coming out. And we had a huge team that helped me prepare psychologically, mentally, for that. And I think, you know, but immediately when I, after I came out, it's just this huge weight that lifted from me. And I was able to, to interact and interface with every single human being as a whole person. Um, that this leak, yes, it sucks, but I am fortunately and luckily enough that I don't need to to worry because no one can use this information against me because I'm out. Yeah, and I think as you said, right, the the whole kind of high stakes behind the leak is it's not the leak itself but the stigma. Like so for example, if it had been a registry of people who had high blood pressure that got leaked, yeah. the stakes are not the same, right? Because people would just be like, Oh, you have high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh okay. But because there's so much Oh you have high blood pressure, so- let me bring you some soup. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a case. Now the case has been, oh my god, you have HIV, we need to isolate this person. Yeah. And I think like people with high blood pressure probably take more pills than you do right? <laughs> like, on a daily basis. Yeah. So it's just kind of really marrying that the tech side and the system side with the social. Uh, and I think just kind of, you know, to start wrapping things up, I think we often, and it's not just the Singapore only, right? I think, Worldwide and particularly with so many tech companies now, there's this push to see solutions as tech. Like you know, if if this system broke, we'll just build another system to guard this system, and then like more and more tech yeah, yeah, will yeah. become better and better without addressing the fundamentals. 
because you know you could build a better more secure hiv registry but you can't build tech you can't build an algorithm that will you know destroy stigma yeah, it's exactly like in fact there's, a, there's, a, there's this idea that whatever systems we build what's what, what whatever technology we build are essentially codified versions of the values we have already i wish there's an algorithm that we can codify and help me understand how to reduce stigma <laughs> or raise yeah. awareness about this download this app, app and you will no longer you know be afraid yes. of hiv nus researchers are you listening to this <laughs> we need your help even if our listeners would like to learn more about um, aids and hiv where should they go visit well, they can always visit our website at www.afa.org.sg. Um, but I think one of the really simple things you can do now is to show, your, show your solidarity towards persons living HIV by wearing a red ribbon. No other time than now to show your support towards us. A big thank you to our guests, Avin Tan and Chong Kai Shung, for joining us today. And also, as always, a big thank you to my co-host, Kirsten Han. Be sure to tune in next week for Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews, and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And please do check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead.